If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to For the State, the show where journalists talk journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Sharon Davis. In this edition, a special guest we caught up with on a recent visit to Australia. Azadeh Moaveni is a UK-based journalist, writer and academic who's been covering the Middle East for two decades. Her work regularly appears in the Financial Times, The Guardian and The New York Times. Azadeh also works as a gender analyst for the International Crisis Group. She's written a number of books about the region, including Lipstick Jihad and Honeymoon in Tehran. Her most recent book, Guest House for Young Widows, Among the Young Women of ISIS, is a compelling account of 13 young women from Germany, the UK and Tunisia who responded to the call from ISIS to leave the comfort of their homes and join the caliphate in Syria. Of course, there were also Australian women attracted by ISIS who are now languishing in detention camps in northeastern Syria with their children. Azadeh has recently visited these camps. We began the conversation discussing her early years reporting on the Middle East, when she was based first in Cairo and then in 2000 moved to Iran, where her family is from, for Time magazine. She left Tehran in 2007 after a government crackdown made it virtually impossible to report from there safely. You know, looking backwards, I think it was a much more hopeful time, even though at the time it didn't feel so terribly hopeful. You know, there were real pockets of, of time and space where it felt like the, the kind of recent contemporary past of some of those societies might be re- redirected. I mean, Iran had a very vibrant women's movement, for example, and it seemed as though um, there was a, a real shot at you know, changing some of the discriminatory laws that women faced. And it was a really exciting time as well because there was a lot of civil disobedience and a kind of different approach sort of changing uh, what the state tolerated by simply pushing the boundaries in daily life. And and I wrote about that a lot. Um, In the Arab world, it was, you know, there were moments too, you know, the Israeli withdrawal from southern Lebanon and the possibility that, you know, those kind of old conflicts might kind of turn new corners. Um, But then the Iraq war really kind of darkened... uh, the whole sort of, I think, sense of, of possibility in the region. And of course, that followed, uh, you know, after the, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Um, so it suddenly seemed that these military ruptures would just reverberate for years, and, and they have. As a woman reporting from that period in that time, it's become more common now, but in those years, it wasn't quite as common. What was that like? I always found it very advantageous, uh, 
partly because as a woman, you could inhabit all the spaces. You could uh, be with the military. You could go into living rooms. Um, I remember in 2003, you know, kind of the opening of the Iraq war, and there were so many um, killings at checkpoints. and, And there were so many Iraqi women who were widowed because their husbands were just killed you know, accidentally, and sort of going into spaces, women's spaces, where men couldn't go. So I always found it really kind of powerful thing to be a woman and and to be able to move to both sides of the story, you know, doing the military side, security, policy, kind of the hard politics, and then also being able to um, kind of inhabit the places where at a certain point, you know, men couldn't be able to access as readily. Obviously, you're reporting on those bigger geopolitical questions, but do you also think that women see war differently? I think women spot things that they look for and that can be revelatory. Um, So noticing that girls in particular are being kept out of school because the country becomes so unstable or noticing that in the midst of what seems like a terrible security situation, there are weddings or women are doing their trousseau shopping, things like this that kind of you know, can can be part of a portrait of, of a moment uh, of a community or a city uh, that's struggling. And then also sort of seeing the ways uh, I think that women support and propel and maybe even inflame what seems like a very male dynamic on the outside. So I think, you know, we look at militias in Iraq or the kind of outer face of many of these um, security or militant movements. And we think that they're driven by men and, and factors related to men like unemployment. There are no jobs for the men or, you know, the there's, um, you know, state brutality or the police are brutal towards men. But really, women are very much a part of that whole ecosystem as well. You know, they might be the ones at home saying, you know, yes, you know, you've got to fight and, and we support it. Um, so I think seeing that too, um, kind of seeing uh, the the ways in which it may perhaps, you know, at moments seem like women are invisible, uh, but very much present um, and very much, I think, propelling dynamics that seem very male on the outside. It's interesting you say that because one of the women in your book was involved in the Arab Spring uprising, which we saw in the West from the outside as pretty much a male movement. But clearly it wasn't that. Women were very, very active. There were moments, and and I can understand perhaps why it was seen that way, because uh, when they became uh, very violent or when there were police crackdowns, um, you know, sort of visually from afar, you would see it was was a lot of men, but especially at the beginning when they were more peaceful and there was a bit of tolerance for them, um, women were really very vibrantly at the forefront of them. And I think you know, largely because many of them had, you know, higher expectations. They experienced, you know, these dictatorships, you know, not only as as citizens who had very little rights and opportunity, but also as women who were chafing under quite patriarchal societies or families um, that didn't offer them a great deal of opportunity or voice even in the kind of personal space. So I think for them, there was a sort of double motivation to be out there pushing because they were pushing against the state, but they were also pushing against, I don't know, the passivity of of the family in, in their own way too. When did you decide you wanted to write this book and what prompted that for you? The book 
grew out of a story that I wrote. It ended up being a front page story for the New York Times about Syrian women defectors from ISIS. Um, and I had reported that story because I had been chasing those London-born schoolgirls who had defected to ISIS. Uh, and at first I had imagined that I only wanted to write, you know, a very big sort of magazine story about them and, and why. You know, how could ISIS have sort of reached its tentacles into the minds of these London teenagers, uh, these bright, successful, popular girls, and, and persuaded them to come. I ended up meeting, as I chased for them, these Syrian women who had grown up in Raqqa, which became the capital uh, of the Islamic State, uh, and who were tremendously relatable to me. They studied literature and were at uni and, you know, were not deeply ideological, kind of bigoted, all of the things we associate with ISIS. So it was really when I encountered them that I realized that I felt like there was a book worth of stories to tell, because I think the story of women and ISIS is such a complicated one. It's really such a mosaic. There's a lot to do with the past. There are many different countries that were intertwined, um, and it really had to be all woven together. You say in the prologue to your book that you also saw yourself in some of those young women. Could you Tell us more about that. So when I started reading their social media exchanges after they had gone, reading what they had tweeted and what they had said to each other on Instagram, um, it was a moment for me where I thought, wow, like that stuff I would have said. Um, you know, I think when you grow up in the West in a Muslim household, or not even Muslim, Middle Eastern, Eastern, Pakistani, Afghani, um, you know, you have parents who have come from countries that have experienced, um, you know, either colonial rule or interventions. You know, my, my country of origin, you know, experienced a CIA-led coup of its, you know, democratically elected prime minister in 1953. You kind of inherit a deep suspicion of Western foreign policy uh, to the point where, you know, sort of your mind is filled with, with many grievances. And it's not deep education. You know, you're inheriting your family's tendencies, which is a deep suspicion and, and to an extent a hostility, I think. You know, I, I saw in them the things they were, they were kind of being awakened to all of these injustices, uh, Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and all of these sufferings. Palestine. Palestine, of course. And so they had all of that sort of swirling around and at the same time felt, um, you know, quite uh, they were sort of chafing between their mother's expectations of them being, you know, very good Muslim girls, uh, but growing up in liberal London and, and very much kind of squeezed between that. I mean, that was my teenage years, certainly. I very much identified with all of that, uh, that political worldview that, that's not developed, but that feels aggrieved. Um, and that sense of not really belonging in either culture, feeling a misfit in both, and a lot of guilt. So all of that to me was familiar, and I could see how ripe it would be for, you know, a group that had very sophisticated ways of reaching young people and picking up on these nuances of, of their kind of troubled identities and then exploiting it. Well, let's talk about these women that you chose for the book. I think you chose 13. How did you choose them, and do they have a common experience of why they joined ISIS and decided that they would actually risk their lives for the caliphate. I chose the 13 stories in the end to tell because they were the most complete stories that I had. Um, they were the ones where I could largely tell the, the kind of arc of such an experience from being um, kind of captivated or groomed and recruited into these ideas to going, um, although not all of them went, um, 
but but tried to go to to the other side, either you know suffering, regret, death. Um, I had more stories, um, but these were the ones where I felt as though I had gained an intimate enough sense of of the woman to be able to really kind of uh, portray the whole sort of spectrum of, of what had happened. If there was a common theme, um, I would say it was a feeling of exclusion. And that could be as intense or radical as being excluded because your country has descended into civil war and there's no politics anymore. They're just fighting. And if there were politics, then maybe because of your particular uh, religious background, you know, you're not included in those politics. You're very much kind of out of power. So that's Syria. Nor that the Tunisian woman that I write about was religious and pious and covered her hair, and that was not allowed in the Tunisia that she grew up in. So by virtue of her identity and her faith, she was disincluded or excluded from getting an education and seeing a kind of role for her in Tunisian life. And, and the, you know, the girls from London in their own way, I think, felt very much excluded from what it could be to be a British teenager. They were, they covered their hair. You know, I think the media held girls who covered their hair and, and Islam very much in a sort of contempt. And I think that they felt that, I think that feeling was certainly exacerbated or manipulated by ISIS in its messaging, but I think they had a bit of it. It varies tremendously country to country. You know, in, in, in a country like Syria, that exclusion is by the whole population. In, in London, I think many Muslims or, or immigrants feel that sense of it, but, you know, only a tiny fraction would be motivated to, to kind of take such a violent path in response to it. But as a kind of idea, I think that's a binding one. Was it difficult to get the women to open up to you? Often it was. For, for a whole host of reasons, security fears, could they get in trouble? Would the police be listening? Would they be watched? Would, would, was I being watched? Then they would be being watched. Um, kind of trauma, feeling ashamed of, of having been attracted to this idea or getting caught up in it. Um, for those that I met in the detention camps after, I think uh, some didn't want to talk at all. They saw a Western reporter uh, as, as an ideological kind of enemy. But I would say overall, there were many who wanted to process what had happened to them and felt a kind of relief through that. And that when that happened, that was quite, a, you know, I was almost going to say exciting, but it was also a relief because the sort of ethical problem of, of trying to elicit you know, information or stories from someone who doesn't want to share was then sort of bridged for me. But it was very hard. You mentioned a young woman called Noor from Tunisia. Can you tell me a bit about her? Noor was 13 when the book begins, the story that I, that I start with her. Um, she was a young teenager in the Tunisia right before um, the Arab Spring uprising, or the Tunisian uprising of 2011. So she came from a quite religious, traditional family, I would say like the vast majority of, of Tunisian society. And she wanted to start covering her hair as she approached adolescence, as, as many girls do. But in the Tunisia of, of that time, it was forbidden to have a headscarf in public because uh, Tunisia had been a French colony. It had a very sort of uh, secular authoritarian regime that disallowed this in universities and in, in government buildings and in you know much of public life. So she showed up at school having decided to cover her hair and and her, her face, actually. She had been watching YouTube, watching kind of Saudi-funded, very kind of orthodox set of uh, religious teachings on YouTube, partly because in that Tunisia, 
the state decided who the imam was at the mosque. So people who felt that the state was corrupt and brutal didn't trust those religious leaders because they felt like they were, you know, complicit in, in, in this system that ruled them so badly. So Noor turned to YouTube. She got her Islam on YouTube and it gave her a quite severe version of Islam. So she decided she had to cover up and she went to school that way and her teachers responded really harshly. They threw her out of class. One of them slapped her, kind of became a physical confrontation. And so she went home and became a high school dropout. She thought, you know, if it's my faith or school, I will choose my faith. And so she sort of sat at home just waiting for her teenagehood to pass until in 2011, you know, the spark of that Arab Spring uprising started in Tunisia and there was a massive kind of public uprising against the system there and it was overthrown. Uh, and suddenly there was a lot of space in politics and Noor got caught up in quite radical movement that really wanted, you know, extreme change. It wanted to go, you know, and I think the, the most marginalized, like Noor, wanted to go all the way to the other side. And eventually, you know, it was banned, the movement that she came a part of. You know, she ended up being part of those Tunisian young people who felt like the revolution didn't go far enough, that it was still very much in the hands of the old elite and that it was really the same old story. It was just marginally less brutal, marginally less corrupt. And it was kind of at that moment that she got caught up in her husband who couldn't even get a job and that in that Tunisia, um, fell in with these uh, militants that were starting to go to Syria. And it was at a time when I think also the Syrian civil war seemed like a just war and going to fight the Assad government and saving people seemed appealing and it seemed right. Um, and they got caught up in this and, and she tried to go um, and, you know, thought that perhaps there, there would be the opportunity that she had hoped the Arab Spring would bring to her country and didn't. When I read her story, it made me think of the French banning of headscarves and of the demand by some people in Australia that headscarves be banned and how that seemingly small decision can cause this incredible reaction. You must have encountered that quite a bit. Absolutely. And there's, it's interesting you mentioned that because there's, uh, there was some research by a think tank in the U.S. that kind of mapped countries that had sent a lot of recruits to ISIS. And there was a, a real correlation between countries that had banned the headscarf or that had banned the face veil. Um, so there was a kind of connection between this kind of extreme French secularism and, and veil bans are a big part of that. And the radicalization of young people because they feel it such an affront. They feel that their kind of sheer identity as a, as a Muslim and their civil rights as a Muslim are being utterly abrogated. So that was interesting. Also, if it's a headscarf ban, then it's a real problem because, you know, that to many Muslim women is such a basic kind of marker or requirement of their piety. But yes, so often these are conducted in, in the name of liberalism, but they take away women's choice and are seen, I think, by Muslims as a kind of excuse for a hostile a state like France, for example, that has a very fraught relationship with its racial minorities to sort of um, to stigmatize them further or to control them, really. So it ends up uh, creating so much friction and hostility. And in the end, the number of women who want to cover their face is so tiny. Um, it's kind of laughable seeing countries like, where was it, um, Austria or Denmark, um, enacting national legislation for something that only 200 women in their country do. <laughs> Let's talk about those young women from Bethnal Green. In the West, we all have, remember those very strong images of the three young women walking through, I think it was Heathrow Airport, to go and join the fight, the struggle in Syria. What did you make of them and, and how is it that they were attracted to ISIS? I didn't get to 
speak to them directly um, because by the time I started working on the story, they had gone and even their families couldn't really get in touch with them. Um, so I spoke to some of their families and I spoke to some of their friends and um, and I eventually got to speak to some of the people who had brought them into ISIS territory. So I tried to sort of reconstruct their experience through, through all of this. The three uh, went after the first. There was actually four. Um, there was a very strong personality in the group of these girls and she had just lost her mother. Her mother died of cancer. She had only grown up with her mother. So she had been going through this very profound grief, of course, and was spending a bit more time at the mosque and was quite vulnerable. And it was at that moment that she had met someone who was recruiting. And so the kind of net first ensnared her at a time when she was very vulnerable. And I think she was um, looking for some meaning, some sort of anchor and not finding it at home and being told all these things that it was her religious duty to go, that she would find solace there, that this life in the West was material and empty and that she there could go and save lives and, and fulfill her duty to God. So she was very caught up in it. And of course, I think, you know, her friends got caught up in it as well. And you know, became persuaded that there was great injustice being done uh, to people in Syria by the Syrian government, that there was great injustice being done to Muslims all over the world by Western policies. And at the same time, they would never really be accepted. They were told by a lot of this messaging and began to feel, you know, one of them said, I don't even feel like I belong in this world anymore. But it was all very chaotic, though, because they were teenagers. So then the, the tweet after that would be, oh, my God, I love these new trainers that I got and, you know, doing my homework in the park that I love. And it was very much you could sort of see that someone was kind of inculcating these ideas that might have just been like a whiff of something, but was being kind of whipped up in them to, to something much bigger, like this alienation. I could see that it was there in, in a very slight way, but they were suddenly really playing it up. Um, so they decided to go in the end. And I think there was an aspect of it that felt like a lark. They were rebelling against their parents and they would get married there. And of course, you know, they were 16-year-old, 15-year-olds, weren't allowed to date, weren't allowed to have boyfriends in the middle of London where, you know, that seemed like the most normal thing. But for them, it was forbidden. Um, so I think that was part of it too. I mean, it sounds bizarre, but I mean, they had grown up in a milieu where the normal experience for a girl was in a way not available to them. And in a, in a quite strange way, you know, going to Syria to join this group and, you know, to get a husband um, sort of ended up seeming like an adventure that was also saving people, that was also enabling them to have what they wanted. How sophisticated was the ISIS? I think you've called it grooming of these young women. It was remarkably skillful, the way that they used all of the apps and the the digital platforms, the social media sites that these girls were on, and the way that the messaging was targeted, the propaganda was targeted towards them. I mean, they would share memes, kind of riffing off cosmetic ads, um, covered girl um, like cover girl, you can come here and be a pious, you know, believing Muslim, but you can also be a feminist because we believe in women's participation and we believe in gender justice just within a lot of orthodoxy. What to me was striking was because I sort of watched it in different languages and in different times and place. I mean, I had never seen anything like it. And, and it was kind of laughable watching governments scramble. You know, the State Department started putting up a anti-ISIS feed trying to combat these messages. And it was so uh, crude and, and you know... Uh, 
it was as though it was existing like in a diff, like a century previous. Um, so it was very, it was very sophisticated, and it was very technologically, aesthetically advanced. I mean, you watched it. Some of the the recruitment videos you watched, and you felt like you were watching a Hollywood movie. It was so well done, and it used all this religious music that was really kind of resonated with anyone really who's even mildly culturally religious, and it kind of applied all of these themes together in this very. Um, refined way and I think you know girls like that who had all these things swirling in their minds you know I it was they kind of met them there very easily and in some ways it reminded you of the grooming that a sexual predator uses precisely there there was that this kind of encircling of of a young girl First of all, saying, don't tell your parents that you're in contact with me. Your parents are wrong. They don't know what's good for you. They've been brainwashed by the West and their Islam is, uh, and their piety is, is cultural and, and poor and, you know, you can't even trust their religiosity. So all the things a sexual predator would do to sort of encircle the potential victim, to break the bonds of trust between a young girl and her family, teachers, maintain the relationship in secret, um, so eroding this trust maintaining this kind of secrecy and then promising to take care of a girl. And, and there were other girls I talked to who very, you know, broken families. You know, some of them, I, th- I think one of them was suffering some sort of abuse and sort of coming in as a protector, kind of ahead of the exploitation. Um, so it seemed to me an entirely parallel dynamic and, and it worked just as well in such a dark way. So they're offered inclusion, they're offered ironically, a kind of a feminism, the chance to be yourself, what do they find when they get there? They found almost immediately that very little of this was genuinely going to be on offer. Um, They arrived at these guest houses, and and the title of the book is taken from these places where women were taken upon arrival, and they started being matched up with prospective husbands, and they went to religious training, and some had some military training. But very quickly, I think very often they saw through their husbands, because the husbands, many of them, had sort of shown up because they thought they were going to be fighting the Assad government, and instead there was this internecine warfare between rival rebel groups, and they were they were quite brutal to even their own fighters. So, so the girls or the women saw that their husbands were very unsatisfied, but they couldn't not fight because they would be taken to prison. You know, if there were there were grievances amongst the men, you know, of course, the men were also treated in, in some ways, those who sought to deviate or opposed and, and thought it was going a bad way. And then when those husbands were killed, the women had to remarry. They were forced to remarry. Some of them were even forced to remarry before their formal widowhood period was over. So some of them had to marry, you know, two, three, four times children with multiple men, even if they didn't want to. So they were taken back to these guest houses. And these over time became really inhospitable, awful places, you know, deep deeply overcrowded, run like a prison so that the women would get so fed up with being there that they would accept to marry someone because then at least they could go into their own house. And those who tried to escape were killed sometimes. Those who tried to escape and were caught had their children taken away. They were sent to prison. So it was it was extraordinarily brutal. And one of those London girls, I think, saw it very quickly. She wanted to try and get home, and she told her family, it made a terrible mistake. I'm so scared. Can you get me out? Um, and she, you know, very tragically died in an airstrike on the house she was living in before they were able to attempt to get her out. So I think for the vast majority, they, they realized very quickly that it was nothing like what had been promised. And how hard was it to get out? 
in the earlier period, if you had some cash and some connections, it was feasible. There's a the story of, of a, a woman in the book who had gone from Germany who manages to, to escape. And the Syrian women in the book managed to escape. Um, but as, as time went on, I would say sort of beyond mid-2016, it became much harder because uh, the border crossing with Turkey became much more tightly monitored. The Turks monitored it much more closely. So then it became very difficult and it became more expensive. And the risk of having paid a lot of money to someone like a smuggler, I mean, it ended up being human trafficking. I mean, sometimes they would just take your money and then drop you right back off. This happened, you know, to, to several women and families that I spoke to. And then at a certain point, you know, the money had dwindled because, you know, the state didn't really pay in the way that it had promised to pay for everything. And at a certain point, I think for most, it just became impossible to leave. We've just talked about these young women like they're victims, particularly the younger women. Is that how you see them? They weren't all victims, were they? Certainly not. Um, even some of them who I think were deeply dehumanized by what they did and traumatized by what they did still did those things, you know, if, if they were not minors. They perpetrated crimes, perpetrated, you know, the whole the whole project really and are were complicit in it. I think the fact that they were then kind of suffered at the group's hands makes it slightly complicated because they're sort of perpetrators and victims at the same time. And I think that's something that we have to grapple with when we talk about rehabilitation and prosecution of these women who come out. Um, but there were some who, you know, especially like once it became clear by the time we're in 2016, ISIS has made very clear that, that it's a genocidal, kind of territorially ravenous terrorist group. And so ones who went at that point, I think, you know, I sort of, in my mind, I have a real timeline. Because I think if you wanted to join ISIS in 2016 or later, you are a, a deeply troubled, violent person. Because then we're seeing the gross atrocities, the mass atrocities, the beheadings and more in the West of what's going on over there. Arguably, we were even seeing that in 2015, but it was just starting and there were some justifications for it and many were convinced that the West was making it up because they wanted to blacken their name. But at a certain point, it became clear. Remember the Jordanian pilot that they burned alive in a cage? You know, by then, this kind of theater of violence became, you know, uh, it, was, it was inevitable to have to accept that it, it was true and that it was happening. So that's something that at a certain point, I think the women who joined, and I think that's part of the real fear of taking uh, many of these women back to their home countries, is that women who joined at that point, you know, certainly abetted or, you know, were, were tacitly accepting of things like the slavery of Yazidi women. And possibly attracted even by the violence. Indeed. And so, you know, there's, there's very little evidence to prosecute women, but they also, many of them, especially those who joined midpoint or later, joined as members. They weren't going there to be brides or wives. They were going to be part of this project. Um, and so their accountability also is certainly uh, a tricky thing to prosecute around because how much do you get for just joining in a lot of European countries? You know, your sentence is like two years for something like that, just membership you know, and, and this is, I think, a crux of a lot of the problems we have is that the, the terrorism laws or the, the kind of legal basis for dealing with a lot of these types, women's rules in such a group, um, none, of, none of these legal systems had envisaged such a problem. That gets us to these camps. 
you've been to some of the camps. Can you describe what they're like? The first one I went to in 2017, and that was the summer that Raqqa fell. And it was um, one of the first camps that, that opened up near Raqqa. Um, it it was there was a small annex where so the foreign women were always held separately. Um, so Syrians and Iraqis uh, were in in a, a bigger area and they had some freedom of, of movement, uh, but the foreign women and their children were you know in straight detention immediately. They got much worse uh, with time though because um, the capacity immediately became strained once there was a massive. Um, exodus of people from Baguz, the sort of last stand uh, of ISIS. Uh, so by the time the biggest camp, which is called Al-Hol, and it's in northeastern Syria and a part of Syria that is outside of government control that, you know, was run sort of largely by, I would say, the U.S. coalition. And I think that's where quite a number of Australian women and children are held. Exactly. That is the camp that has the largest population of of foreign women and children. I think it's something like 12,000 women and children. So I have been there... um it is a very frightening place. First of all, it's uh, it's a detention center, and and I think there's a real resistance to calling it that because when people are detained, they have sort of rights under the Geneva Convention as prisoners of war. You know, access to legal counsel, access to medical care, which none of these women get. Um, so there's no access to any medical services. They're kind of held in this cooped up area. Uh, and there's, it's full of, or there's a number of very violent ISIS women still in there. So they basically make it a war zone for everyone else because they attack medical staff who come in to offer clinical services. They attack guards. They attack women that they catch smoking. So for women who were sort of coerced into going or who just want to escape this whole thing, pay the price, get back, it's it's a real hell. It's like still living under ISIS. Uh, they don't get enough food because the guards don't even want to go in there. So the food gets dumped outside of, of the camps. Um, there's a lot of disease. I mean, the, the week that I was there, a child had drowned because he fell into a fecal pit in the toilet. You know, the water is undrinkable. Everyone has permanent diarrhea from the water. It's covered in snow right now because it's winter, so there's a lot of hypothermia. I think maybe 500 children died there last year because of the conditions. So um, it is a really uh, fetid, violent, frightening place. Did you come across any of the Australian women when you were there? I didn't. Um, I, I read about some of those cases and, and listened to some, some radio broadcasts uh, about them. So I'm a little bit aware that that there's a number of them and some of their stories kind of from afar, but I didn't meet them. A number of them, their story is that they were duped, that they didn't understand what they were going to and that as soon as they got there, they didn't want to be there and now they want to come home. How believable is that story? So I will, I will respond to that based on others, of course, that I've spoken to. I mean, one thing to bear in mind is that you know, these women are living in this camp that the area that they live in is still policed by these ISIS enforcers. So if they come out and say, uh, it was all a lie, it was all evil, they were brutal to us, I hate it, um, they could be in, in physical danger. That That's one thing. Um, the second thing is, um, it, it's sort of what they have to say in order to be able to get out and come back. Um, if under different conditions, I think some that I've spoken to uh, would probably eventually readily admit that they weren't entirely duped, that they thought that they were going because it was their religious duty or they were saving, uh, it was a humanitarian thing, they wanted to, to, you know, to help the fight against Assad. Um, You know, I think, you know, 
on the other side, everyone says that they were duped. And, and maybe they were duped in that they thought that there would be more of the righteous humanitarian fight and all they found was the violence on the other side. And, and But the reality is maybe some of that violence was acceptable to them because they felt like the other side of it was actually real, that there was um, a struggle against you know, this very brutal regime that you know kills people on an industrial scale. And you can kind of understand that in a situation where there's a deeply bloody civil war, um, you know, this argument that um, you know, we have to fight that terrible violence with our own terrible violence kind of has its own logic. Um, but I think these are things that certainly they can't say at, at this point, um, simply because they want to be able to present themselves as, as not a danger. And I think that's the thing they realize is that their home societies feel they're a terrible danger. So if they kind of admit to any kind of kind of genuine belief or persuasion, you know, uh, from their intent, then they might not be allowed back. So, of course, that's the debate in Australia at the moment is that these women have a number of children. As you say, the conditions in a camp are appalling. What should a country like Australia do? If Australia is like European governments or countries that, that I've worked on and, and, and spoken to, you know, security officials, politicians, um, it, it probably has some pretty good intelligence uh, on, on those women. It's not a huge number. Um, it's probably has already dealt with some women who've come back on their own. There's reasonable, if there's reasonable intelligence that kind of can sort between these women and not look at them all as a monolith, I would imagine that there are a great number who are not really understood as a genuine security threat. So starting with them, bringing them back so that their children can be brought back and then prosecuting them for whatever kind of minimum or appropriate term, you know, would apply or putting them through some kind of uh, rehabilitation and very close monitoring, of course. Um, I think that is is inevitable. Um, But I think most countries know amongst their women uh, who is really dangerous and caught up in, in real networks and had operational experience and, and would be a real worry and those who aren't. So a kind of cautious approach that begins with very vulnerable women who are seen as the least of a threat seems to be a kind of from a humanitarian security number of perspectives a good way to start. Because you pointed out in your talk the other day that Indonesia started by bringing back some of the women, bringing them home, but then they got their fingers burnt and that stopped. So I have to say, Indonesia stopped, um, but I don't know if they stopped simply because um, it became politically kind of unpopular back at home or whether there was a there was an attack perpetrated by a returnee. Um, I'm not sure of that. Um, But there are a number of countries that have started and stopped. You know, Russia has taken back, you know, several hundred, I would say, and then has stopped. Um, So there's a a real kind of scattiness to it, even among countries that have been more inclined. Um, And, you know, with Russia, it's not clear why there are some that have been left behind. Um, But also, I think the... You know, many countries are struggling with what programs to put in place. What can they do? What kind of rehabilitation do women need in particular? In lots of places, women get no rehabilitation or engagement because they are seen as just women. So they've just come back. They were potentially duped. Now they've come back. They're just, you know, victims of it. And I think that's a real, uh, it's a real blind spot. 
I gather there's also real questions around the whole notion of de-radicalisation programs and whether they work or not. This is a, a real controversy now in the UK, of course, because um, there was an attack recently um, by someone who had gone through a so-called de-radicalization program and it was deemed to no longer be dangerous and then committed this attack. Um, I personally am, am somewhat baffled by by this idea. I mean, when you have violent offenders of any kind, whether they're engaged in political violence or simply, you know, if they're murderers, there's no sort of de-radicalization program for rapists and murderers. Um, they get the prison sentence that the law deems correct for the type of crime they've committed. And, and I think it should certainly be the case with terrorism or with political violence as well. I mean, in the end, for every one person that holds those extreme views, there will be 10 who hold the same views but know that they should not act it out. And we don't know what differentiates the one who acts violently from those who don't. So this idea that you can de-radicalize, I think, is based on a really faulty premise. And I think it's very dangerous that we kind of get into this space that and and I think it's also quite kind of racialized and, and faulty as well because this idea that you can religiously deprogram someone as though it's like they got the wrong kind of Islam and so you can then give them the right more moderate fuzzy kind and then they won't commit violence um, I think really essentializes a certain type of, of violence to kind of taking it out of the normal human criminal experience and so I'm you know, really skeptical of them um, because so much sort of weight is put on, can we get it right? And I think there's a lot to be done with rehabilitation. You can do psychosocial services, you can do job training, you can do support. As part of those psychosocial services, you can offer, you know, women counseling by someone who has their same religious cultural background. But that's not the same as de-radicalizing. It's kind of what you would do with, um, you know, societies that have gone through war and conflict and you're trying to do kind of uh, post-conflict recovery. Um, all of that's okay, but that's not de-radicalization. <laughs> At the end of the book, you go back to that young Tunisian woman, Noor. Tell me what her story is now. So her husband, who had gone to Syria, never came back. And she was struggling because she had to live with her parents again with their daughter. Uh, and She had done some prison time? She had, because the authorities had rounded her up. Um, they thought that she would be the source of intelligence about her husband, the source of some intelligence about others who had gone, about other ISIS networks. So she spent, uh, you know, a couple of, of not short stints in prison where she was um, interrogated a lot, um, kind of... Uh, light abuse, I would say. I mean, she wasn't raped, but she had to sort of watch a woman be stripped down and, and, and kind of terrorized by police. Um, and in the end, her parents got her out by paying a bribe, which is the story of the old Tunisia and kind of the story of the new Tunisia too. Um, and uh, lives under, I think, will we'll live under perpetual surveillance um, and and has changed her outward appearance because I think she finds it easier to get to get by, to work, um, to withstand some of the police surveillance if she doesn't look like, you know, a traditional covered woman. Um, so, yeah, so the last time I saw her, it was it was so strange. I think the book 
ends her story on this note that she, you know, I'd met her multiple times and she was dressed very severely, you know, all covered, um, just a pair of converse on her feet was the only kind of flash of something not black you could see. And then the last time I saw her, she had her hair all kind of blown out in waves and she had a French manicure and she was wearing a lavender jumper and, um, you know, she looked, uh, she looked gorgeous actually, but she looked not herself. And she said, you know, I'm on this, on the inside, I'm not this, but I'm looking like this. So, you know, so I can work and, and get by. And, um, I feel like I'm living a lie. And in her mind, she still had, you know, all the same attitudes. Yeah. I found that terrifying actually, that she'd changed her outward appearance, but nothing, her hatred of the West and what the West stood for had not changed at all. She still blamed the West for everything that had was still transpiring in her country. Um, you know, her husband in the end went to Syria because he couldn't get a job, partly, partly because, you know, maybe he was drawn to it, of course. But I think this economic context is so huge for, for so many of these countries. Um, and she, you know, Tunisia is permanently in trouble with the IMF. And, um, you know, it can't really kind of pull its economy together. And she blames the West for that, Europe for that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think still has a very dehumanized view of the West as a result of, I think, what she's experienced in her own life. And, and this is was like a hard thing to convey in the book. I think those attitudes are not uncommon. You know, I think that's a really common set of beliefs to have in the Middle East. Um, and some of it is lazy and self-serving. Um, and I think a lot of it is kind of a, a coping mechanism because, you know, so many of these countries just offer no real meaningful citizenship. Like the police can detain you. You're so corrupt, so much brutality. Um, and you see those leaders being feted by U.S. congressmen and, you know, accepted on the world stage in Europe. And you just sort of think, these are my tormentors, but they're embraced by, you know, the most powerful countries in the world. Um, and so it becomes so intermingled. And, and you know, I, I think um, it's hard to see, you know, a, a current generation or a next one thinking any different. UK-based writer and journalist Azadeh Moaveni. Her book, which is a beautifully written and illuminating read, is called Guest House for Young Widows, Among the Women of Isis. Thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their continuing support. You can subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. And share our stories with your friends. Thanks to our producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Sharon Davis. Till next time.